From the war on Disney to the calamitous presidential campaign launch on Twitter, or X, or whatever you want to call it, Ron DeSantis is no stranger to the news, but what do we really know about him? In this episode, we take a closer look at Trump's early challenger for the Republican nomination. Where does he come from? What does he stand for? And what does his meteoric rise through the GOP tell us about politics in America? As we answer the question, who is Ron DeSantis? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Returning from the faculty is Dr. Emma Long, Associate Professor of American History and Politics and Head of the Department of American Studies at the University of East Anglia. Welcome back, Emma. Hi, Liam. Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. And uh, one day I'm going to completely stumble over that that title. Uh, but so far, <laughs> yeah, it's so it's not exactly um, doesn't trip off the tongue very easily, does it? <laughs> Sorry about that. That's fine. It's good to have you on. Um, so let's just jump straight into this because as I think anyone listening to the podcast will be aware of, Ron DeSantis has announced his candidacy for the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential election. He launched on Twitter um, rather disastrously um, through a live space with Elon Musk. Despite that, I really don't think we still know who this guy is. Uh, So we're going to look at, firstly, who Ron DeSantis is, but also uh, what his very rapid rise up the ranks tells us about politics, about presidential elections, and we're just going to have a, a good natter about uh, the policies that we can expect from DeSantis as well. So let's look at his background. Emma, what do we know about him? Okay, so he's a native Floridian, born and brought up in, in Florida. Um, he's got a, a fairly um, uneventful, should we say, in a, a weird way, sort of history and kind of his, his early life, quite traditional, actually, for, um, for American politicians. So he, he went to Yale Law School, studied history. So go history. Um, uh, obviously, some degree of fan of that, although, as we might come on to talk about, he's a fan of certain types of history, should we, <laughs> should we say, not all of it. He went to Harvard Law School. Uh, he joined the military, so he's a, a veteran, which is not actually an unusual background for for people who have and do serve in in Congress. His legal background meant that he was in the Navy's uh, Judge Advocate General Corps, um, or the the JAG Corps, if anybody's knows of that. And if they're the same age as me, they might remember an old American TV series called JAG, um, which is where we got to know about what it was. <laughs> But um, as part of that, um, he worked with Guantanamo detainees, the the American military base at Guantanamo Bay, those who were were held there under the war on terror. He was also based for a while um, during the 2007 troop insurgency in Iraq. Um, He was based in Fallujah. So he has that, that sort of military experience. In some ways, he's, he's come to political prominence quite quickly. There are, there are some parallels, not direct, but some similar parallels to Barack Obama, who, you know, Obama 
really wasn't very well known and, and not really sort of well known in national politics before he um, he gave a, a very famous speech at the the 2004 Democratic National Convention just before he was elected to the the Senate and it kind of it launched him into the stratosphere politically and of course what happened then is he used that very successfully and then his his new career in the Senate to as a launch pad to the the 2008 presidential campaign. DeSantis has sort of taken a slightly different route, but he seems to have emerged almost as as quickly in uh, in that sense. So he was elected to Congress from um, Florida's sixth district in I think he was elected in 2012, but took office in 2013. It's a safe conservative seat. Um, it has voted for every Republican president by a, roughly a 60 to 40 split. Um, in every election in the 21st century, just to give you an idea of, of what that seat looks like. So it was pretty safe for someone of his his politics. He represented the uh, the House of Florida in the House until uh, 2018, uh, when he ran for Florida governor, uh, which is where he is now. It was quite uh, a story in 2018 when he he ran for governor he won the election by 0.4% of the vote um which even in american terms is a really tiny uh, tiny margin it went to recounts and there were uh, there's a whole thing around even in that. florida terms that's 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 small margins right <laughs> even in florida terms we're talking yeah. small margins you know we're talking <laughs> a few hundred votes here or, or there across the entirety of the the state but he's he's been very popular. Uh, and that might be something we want to think about why he's been popular, the politics of, of Florida, which like all of the states have it, have its own kind of uh, internal politics as much as anything else. Um, but I think what, what really has launched him into a kind of national level or national level consciousness is the he rewon the governor's seat in 2022. So back last year, with a 19.4% majority. So he's gone from a 0.4% majority to 19.4% over his nearest mm. rival. And it was a combination of that and the fact that he won a number of traditionally democratic counties getting reelected. Um, he also won a large proportion of the Hispanic vote, which you know, traditionally the Hispanic vote has tended to be seen to be more democratic leaning, particularly mm. issues of uh, around issues of immigration. But Florida has a particularly big Cuban population, which tend to lean more politically conservative. So one of the things about that election is it flagged up the variety within what's often labeled the Hispanic vote. But yeah, the combination of the big percentage win, the massive increase in the majority over 2018, and the shift of some of those key districts that had voted sort of for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election, sort of all combined to mean that the media attention was suddenly on him. You know, Trump, uh, you know, Trump was sort of on the down and out a little bit after the 2020 election. He'd been absent for a little while. Um, so I think inevitably media coverage shifts to this young sort of photogenic, well-spoken, mm. articulate uh, Republican candidate who just had so much success in the the election. So, and he's 
obviously then parlayed that into a, a run for the presidency and a challenge to to Trump in in 2024. So, you know, he's he's got quite a traditional political background in some ways for American politicians, and he'd been in politics certainly longer than Obama. But he seems to have come to national consciousness quite recently um, and quite quickly. So that that seems to be why 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 there's a lot of focus on him. Yeah, and you know, you said that there's there's a lot of parallels between DeSantis and and Obama. I mean, those parallels probably come to a, an end when we start looking at his policies. But you know, certainly in terms of background, and I think on paper, DeSantis is textbook presidential candidate. He's got a law background. He's got a military background to, to some degree. He's got. I say he's got the looks. He's he's as you say. He's he. There's a photogenicness about him that tends to serve candidates very well. He knows how to present himself on a camera and um, behind a podium, and that's as you say contributed a lot. I I just I wonder, and and we can probably talk about Obama here as well. But I, I wonder if ten years, because he's roughly been in politics ten years, hasn't he? Or so that that doesn't feel like a long time to really establish yourself in the political system enough to to be at the very top. No, but then, you know, you think about uh, Trump, um, who'd had no political background experience before running in, in 2016. And, right. you know, one of the, the reasons that a lot of people voted for him in 2016 was that that sense that government wasn't working, right? The establishment wasn't working for, for them. Government wasn't working. What it needed was someone to come in and shake everything up. Now, mm. what we know happened in uh, after 2016 is that some of those sort of, if you like, the more central moderate voters who voted for Trump found that the extent to which Trump shook everything up uh, was perhaps a little too much for, for them. Um, and some of them moved away from, from him in the, um, the 2022 election. Mm. But that narrative right, of, of running from outside Washington, of having some government experience, but bringing something else to the table, that's not new. Jimmy Carter did that in 1976. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, in, while America was still trying to overcome the the impact of uh, the Watergate scandal and Nixon, you know, he's very much about he, he'd been governor he'd been governor of Georgia. So he came in with that sort of outsider or outside Washington elite type language. Bill Clinton sort of did a, a similar thing in 1992. You know, he'd, he'd been in politics a while, but he'd been governor of, of Arkansas. So again, outside to some extent of, of Washington politics. Mm. Obama had only been elected a few years before. I mean, this was a discussion that we were having about Obama around 2008 was you know, he'd been involved in lo very local politics, but did a few years in the Senate really give him the political background to, to be able to sort of run the, the country. Now, critics of Obama, of course, would say it didn't. And his eight years as president proved it. Uh, if, depending on who you ask, uh, they'd say he wasn't even American, but that's another can of worms, isn't it? Well, there's a there's a whole other podcast topic, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, you know, I think for, for most people, whether grudgingly or not, would, would accept that he did everything from a good job to an okay job, right? <laughs> As president, mm. that those years of that the lack of that political experience compared to to some previous presidents didn't yeah. actually you know harm him. So in in that sense, DeSantis's position isn't unusual among some of the the more recent 
candidates. You could expect that in a you know if it got to the the general election part of this, um, and he was the main candidate, and that's a big if given some of the other candidates that are putting themselves forward for the Republican nomination. Uh, but if he got to that point, you can you can imagine that 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 would be part of the debate that would be had. But he'd have comebacks for that. And uh, another thing that DeSantis has in his favor is that I feel like Trump and Biden are going to cancel each other out with the age argument um, because that was Trump's whole thing four years ago. And, and obviously he'll come back with that again, you know, next year. Um, but Trump himself is now as old as Biden was when he won that first term. So that argument doesn't really stand up. Um, DeSantis, on the other hand, is uh, at the moment, what, 44? He's sort of mid-40s. I think so, yeah. You know, he, if he won the nomination, he'd be the youngest presidential candidate since um, Obama, probably, 12 years ago? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, he's he's certainly one of the younger candidates. I mean, he's he's quite advanced if you compare him to the, the youngest presidential candidate in American history was Will, uh, William Jennings Bryan back in 1896, <laughs> um, who was 36 when he unsuccessfully ran for the presidency the, the first time. It's hard to imagine we, we think of William Jennings Bryan as a much older man. But uh, yeah, he ran for the presidency. And think about someone like um, Pete Buttigieg, who didn't win the nomination in the 2000 election, but was one of the Democratic frontrunners and is now in the Biden administration. Mm. Um, He was 37 um, running for the, the candidacy. But yeah, I mean, you think about the youngest person to be elected president in American history, which was uh, John Kennedy. Um, he was, uh, I think, 30, uh, 43, sorry, when he was elected. Mm. Um, so DeSantis isn't far off that. And yeah, you know, I think we talked uh, a while back in the podcast about the presidency when we talked with John Sopel about is this the best the Republicans and the Democrats can put forward, you know, these two old white men and we said then well no it it really isn't or at least it shouldn't be so yeah DeSantis is someone who's um, younger who sort of media savvy um, in a different way from Trump you know who can who's tried very hard to kind of win over the the media um, who has a a young family and, and those kinds of things it's a very different image from the ones that you're going to get from from Trump and Biden and one that I suspect his team is thinking is closer to most American voters experience yeah. you know the idea if he if he's he's younger he's he's more in touch with what it's it's like to to be sort of a, an ordinary American if there is any such thing and he's also I mean one of the other things that might be worth mentioning here looking into sort of some of his his background compared to some American politicians he's not hugely wealthy so you know we talk a lot about the influence of money in politics and sometimes that's individuals money like Trump we know Trump spent a lot of his own money uh, in the 2016 and 2020 campaigns which legally he's able to to do but quite often those who run for office in the United States are independently wealthy um, or have become so through whatever their careers were before that. Relatively speaking, and we are talking relatively, DeSantis's assets are not as huge as some, some American politicians. So that idea that he's maybe more able to 
understand what it's like for for people living on minimum wage, right? Trying to to make do in a or make ends meet in an economy with high inflation and you know difficult mm. healthcare costs and those kinds of things. I, I suspect his campaign is thinking that they can use that um, in this kind of context to say he's more in touch. This is okay. This is where I think we need to we need to start picking apart DeSantis as a politician because I think I I think you're right. I think. All of these things that you've just said, you know, the the not being part of the the one percent, you know, the the being younger, you know, and he'll say that makes him more competent, you know, being more connected to the people. These are all just their campaign slogans, aren't they? They're ways to to get votes. But then you start to look at who Ron DeSantis actually is as a politician, what he's doing, and his policies. And this is where it gets a bit murkier because he would want us to believe, certainly if he wins the nomination and goes to a national general election, he will want the electorate to believe that he's more central than Trump, that he he's more representative of both sides of the fence. That's not really the case though, is it? No, not really. Um, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about things that we, I think we've touched on on pod, previous episodes have also touched on, which is the, this difference in, in elections between sort of the image you craft um, and the message that you want to send out. And But ultimately, you've also got to have some policies somewhere along the line, right? You've got to, to say what you stand for or what you stand against. And We've, I think we've also mentioned before that you can't get elected to the presidency without winning over some of those middle voters. You can appeal to your base. That's important in the primary season, right? you know, the first stage of the election when you're trying to get the party nomination. But when you switch from that bit to the general election, um, sort of from usually from the September through to the November part of that, that process, when you've got to appeal to the entire electorate, you can't win the presidency without winning some of those moderate voters. Mm. And that, I think, I mean, without wishing to pretend I'm predicting anything for well over a, an election that's well over a year into the future at this point, that's where DeSantis is going to have trouble, I think, with moderate voters. Because when you look at his record, he is not in the middle of the Republican Party. I mean, even if you assume that the Republican Party has moved to the right of American politics in recent years, which it unquestionably has, DeSantis is not really in the middle. Uh, and he's certainly not in the, the middle of broadly American politics. I mean, you know, he was one of the, the founder members of the Freedom Caucus, which is a, a group within the Republican members of Congress. Uh, founded in 2015, which is widely considered to be the mo- the most right wing of all of the groups within the Republican Party. And they were formed quite specifically as a way to push the Republican Party to the right. He's a founder member. You don't volunteer for membership for that. You get invited. Mm-hmm. So you you have to be part of that in-group to, to be part of, of that. So you've, you know, you've, you've got that as a, a starting point. If you look at his congressional record, the years he was uh, representing Florida in in Congress, there's no doubt that he fits in with the Republican political sphere, right? So he opposed tax hikes for policies about global warming. He voted to repeal Obamacare and standard stuff. Yeah, um, he opposed um, Obama's. 
policies on um, on immigration and DACA, which is the policy that, that allowed for paths to citizenship for um, immigrants for people who'd been brought into the United States as a as children, right? Mm. So he posed that. So yeah, all of those things are fairly familiar from the Republican side of the the aisle, if you like, in the period that he was there. But then when you start looking at some of the things that he's he's done and is doing as governor of Florida in the the last few years, and particularly the things that have been hitting the headlines of late, you begin to see some of those things that would, I think, cause him some difficulties with moderate voters across the the United States. So to be honest, I don't even know where to start <laughs> with some of these. Um, but so if I if I just give you some examples, right, and then maybe we can come back and, and unpick some of them. But um, he has, there's, along with is it Greg Abbott, who's the governor of Texas? There's been this thing to protest what they see as the weak federal government stance on illegal immigration by taking people who have claimed asylum at the the border and shipping them to democratic states. Right? It's just sending them to democratic states and say, there you go, you look after them, completely ignoring that these are people who often don't know what's what what is happening or where they're being moved to but that's hit Ar- the headlines arguably recently. better than rwanda though right uh i would think yes definitely better than uh, better than rwanda mm. um but that same policy right of of moving people yeah, on. yeah. he sort of became quite well known during the covid pandemic florida was one of the first to start lifting restrictions the state he he did implement stay-at-home restrictions initially, but he was one of the governors who began to lift those quite quickly. He opposed the mask mandate to require federal government employees to, to wear masks. He wasn't alone in that, but it's sort of put him on the, the map. He's attacked education in a number of different ways, which links into my point earlier about history. Right? You know, he talks, he's got this slogan, which says, Florida is where woke goes to die. And it's part of this broader sort of conservative critique about the teaching of uh, civil rights history, of issues about racial equality, and particularly racial inequality in America's history, and how that is yeah. taught to school children. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, so there there has been legislation in in Florida about that sort of restricts the way in which teachers are able to teach those those subjects. There's also the famous law, which um, it's called, I think, the Florida Parental Rights in Education Act, which is better known as the "Don't Say Gay" law, um, which effectively says that you you can't talk about issues to do with uh, with homosexuality or same-sex marriage or those kinds of things uh, at high school level. So it's that idea of, you know, we're, we're challenging this left-wing woke agenda and we're not going to allow the corruption of our, student, our kids in schools and all wrapped up in the language of, of parental control, which is very much a narrative that is coming from the further right of the Republican Party. Yeah. So those are playing to like the Trump base, right? The further right of the, the party, not not moderates. Um, he signed a six uh, an abortion law, which bans abortion outside of uh, after six weeks. So again, not unusual for Republican states, but very much up there in terms of, of sort of leading the um, leading the charge against abortion. Yeah, um, that, that's still that's still drastic. Like you expect any Republican 
run state to be generally anti-abortion, but a six-week cutoff, that's sending a real message politically as well. Yeah, most people don't know they're pregnant at six Mm. weeks. Yeah. Um, And that's partly why a lot of states have gone for that, because they can say, well, we're not banning it completely, when in practice, actually... The, the reality is that it, it puts very fairly severe limitations on it. It's becoming more common among Republican states. But yeah, it's, you know, it's a very, very strict mm. law. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, he's also a gun rights supporter. So there's a law that's, I think, just about to come into effect in Florida, as we record this in the, the summer um, of 2023 that means that if you want to carry a concealed weapon in public you don't need a permit to do that so he's very much on the the kind of the rights of of gun owners he's challenging the supreme court by reinstituting the death penalty for certain classifications of crime uh, that the supreme court has said the death penalty should not be eligible for so he's trying Mm -hmm. to set up a legal case probably like the one that that's oversaw uh saw overturning of Roe versus Wade last year. Um, So all of those things, like the culture wars issues, to use a term that I have some problems with, but (laughs) is familiar to to people, right? Those issues about race, sexual identity, gender, about guns, about abortion, about religion, you know, all of those, all of those issues, right? When you look at what he, where he stands on those kinds of issues, he is very much looking seemingly to appeal to the kind of the Trump populist right wing base. And we know from opinion polls that if you look at moderate voters, those ones he's going to win over to to need to win the presidential election, those are issues where the far right of the Republican Party are out of kilter. So, I mean, that's not to say that people have Candidates haven't been able to do that in the past. You know, you appeal to the you appeal to your base in the uh, the primary season, and then you pivot back to the middle um, for the the general election. But it's a harder one to it's a harder one to to do, especially now with social media and on some of these kinds of issues where people feel really strongly. The risk is you either you alienate the moderate voters in the primaries and then you can't get them back. Or if you can get them back, you might alienate your base who feel like you might be selling, feel like you're selling out and compromising with the the other side. So economically, he's sort of very much in what we would think of as the mainstream conservative area, sort of low, you know, support for business, low taxes, those kinds of, of things. But he's really seems to be staking out in since he declared his presidency, or his run for the presidency, sorry, he really seems to be staking out on these bigger social issues, a position that seems to be trying in a weird way to out-Trump Trump. Trump. <laughs> um, and actually, a lot of commentators have suggested that's that's where he's struggling, because actually, it's very difficult to do that, given how much oxygen Trump tends to to soak up but yeah he's he's def- he's very very clearly sort of setting him out setting himself out on that path as are some of the other republican candidates mm-hmm. so the broad if you like looking beyond DeSantis the broad story of the republican side of this early part of the the presidential race is what republican party emerges 
which version of the Republican Party becomes the one that the party puts forward into the the general election? Is it somebody from the slightly more moderate side of the the party who can try to reach across the the aisle, um, yeah. or is it someone you know from? Is it Trump? <laughs> is it someone who's trying to put themselves slightly to the right of of Trump? DeSantis is one in what is likely to become an even more crowded field. So that's, if you like, that's part of the story of of this early stage of the election. Yeah, and you know, I, there, there's definitely the 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 key question here. I think for any Republican candidate is um, how do you position yourself relative to Trump because he is the one to be and that he just you know all the polls indicate that he currently is way ahead so you know it's it's how do you stand out against Trump um as well as against the rest of the field there's been a very interesting way that DeSantis has chosen to do this uh not least through everything you've said but through one of the targets of his campaign um against the culture wars and against woke and that's Disney and now that's a that's a big big target to try and take down and um he's really going all in on it isn't he like he is it is DeSantis versus Disney in Florida yeah yeah which is a, an interesting uh interesting one isn't it mm. um yeah i mean it it came about um with the parental rights in education act that i just mentioned uh so florida passed the the don't say gay law um disney is a huge corporation which employs a large number of americans across the u.s and there is a very large lgbtq constituency within disney both as as fans and and employment and what happened was uh, a number of uh, disney a large number of disney employees protested the fact that disney was not taking a stand on that law in Florida, because obviously they've got a big theme park there and associated theme park. So they're, they're a big employer in the region. They bring a lot of money in. Um, and the original head, I think, of, of Disney wanted to sort of stay out of it. And then there was a, a sort of a response from employees who said, this is this is unacceptable. This is an attack on the LGBTQ community. Um, we need to, to stand up for that. Ultimately, Disney did. And of course, what DeSantis has kind of labeled them, right? They for for DeSantis and, and his supporters and, and some who's who perhaps are less supportive of DeSantis but of the, the bigger issue. And now seeing Disney as like the epitome of woke culture. I, I don't know what that word really means in the way <laughs> that it gets gets used. But they are using it as a symbol. Right, of yeah. of a fight against the the things in the the changing American culture around issues of of sexuality, of of gender identity, of how we talk about difficult issues to our children. Right, those are uneasy questions to to have about how you know how you introduce these complex topics to young people and as they get older so that they understand what's going on around them. But conservatives have kind of taken a particular line on these uh, these issues. And they're, they're sort of painting Disney as the, the big symbol of all the things that they think are wrong with this, this changing culture. Um, and yeah, I mean, DeSantis is, is not backing down. He tried to... Um, so since it was formed, Disney has had 
basically has been like a county in its own right, which has given it the political power and the legal power to sort of control the area in which the theme parks exist. DeSantis has tried to take that over, basically to say, no, you don't get to control what happens on your own land anymore. Um, There is a court case pending about that. So we don't quite know where that's uh, where that's going to to go. Um, So you've got that element of it. You've got the media relations side of it. You've got Disney earlier on this year saying that that they were going to build a big office block or something along those lines about an investment of about, I think, estimated about $1 billion that they've decided they're not going to go ahead with. Um, They say that it's Part, they say it's partly a response to to what's what DeSantis has been doing on in Florida. DeSantis and others have been saying, well, no, 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 this was already planned in advance. And you know, he said, she said, they said, going on there. But yeah, I mean, DeSantis is playing a high stakes game here, if you like. It's a very high profile, very powerful, very wealthy organization whose products are loved by a lot of Americans across the political spectrum. So if he takes them on and wins, then that has consequences in a, a wide variety of fields. But he's, I guess he's banking on the fact that if he, if he can, that gives him a, a boost politically. If he takes them on and partially wins then he benefits from from that or if he can spin it into a way that says he's he's won um if he takes them on and loses then that's pretty much the end of that um you know that will damage his his career significantly so it's an interesting choice by him to to try to take on something that is so very high profile and a company that has the resources to fight back yeah Um, but i i think what I find most interesting about this is that this fight was started by DeSantis. It wasn't that he was jumping on the bandwagon that the Republicans were already uh, set off with. He, so he's not only started that fight with Disney, he's now setting the agenda for the National Republican Party because they're, they're backing him. They're, they're very much behind DeSantis. And I, I guess that that leads me on to thinking about DeSantis as uh, an influencer within his party and his ability to lead the party and win the presidency because he obviously has a lot of gravitas in the GOP how <laughs> i guess is my question because he hasn't he he hasn't really been in politics that long he he has kind of piggybacked on sort of the 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 trumpian wing of the party so how is he polling so high above every other candidate besides Trump? Well, I was going to say relatively. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a long way behind Trump, although yeah. he's certainly ahead of, of other candidates in the field, but we're also a long way out from the election. So mm. that's not hugely unusual. And of course, what, what's happened is that from the, the height of, of his re-election in 2022, uh, when everybody was sort of like, oh, he's the next you know, presidential candidate, his poll numbers have dropped significantly. And I think even his team would, would acknowledge that. So there's an interesting story there about you know the way in which the media, I think, tells stories about who is and isn't political yeah. or potential political candidates such a long way out from the, the election and how quickly that attention can shift, you know, and, and how that can, can play a role in, in whether people are successful. Yes, he's leading on Disney, with Disney specifically, but the issues around it 
are not specific to to him. They've been around for quite a long time. Mm. So in that sense, he's drawing on concerns that are already there within the Republican base on these issues and just targeting something that is very high profile within his his state so just giving it a face and a brand name for everyone to point the finger at i guess yeah i think so Mm. uh there's an element of of that so it's not he's not shaping if you like the internal discussions he's directing them in a particular way but that's not to say that he doesn't perhaps have some you know, influence be behind the, the scenes or at least as a voice in, in that, like I said, as uh, as part of the Freedom Caucus, you have to be invited to that. So you know, he's obviously seen within those circles as someone whose voice they want as part of that, who's somebody who's with them, um, who, who may have a, a role. So, you know, there's that side of that and his influence within those circles. The Republican Party again. We've I think we've touched on this in previous um, previous podcasts, but you know the Republican Party has become more conservative in recent years, um, and groups like the Freedom Caucus and, and Trump and DeSantis and some of the others are both symptomatic of that shift um, and have helped push that shift a little bit so they're they're both sides of of that so he's he's not on the the margins from that point of view does that translate into a bigger influence within the republican party that i think we have to wait and see you know i, I think we have to to see as we we get closer to the election like i said in in terms of polling numbers He's pretty low at the the moment. Well, he has slipped, and, hasn't he? He's he's lost some ground. Yes. Yeah, and one of the one of the criticisms or, or suggestions for that is again, any Republican candidate is going to have to deal with Trump, right? There's no you can't go round it, you can't ignore it. You know, you're going to have to deal with Trump since he's announced that that he intends to to run. So Republican candidates have a couple of options, right? One is to just outright criticize Trump, to separate themselves off and say, that is not my Republican Party, that is not what I stand for, whether they choose to stand to the the center of the party or place themselves further on the the right, they can do that. But that's dangerous because Trump is so popular. Mm. Um, And, you know, we've seen in previous elections, Trump is really good at sort of uh, sort of stereotyping or, or char- creating characters for opponents with phrases yeah. and and things like that, which you know can can damage their campaigns. We saw it very effectively in 2016. Yeah. Um, so and and, and of the, course the the only candidate that's been brave enough to actually speak out against Trump so far is Mike Pence. Um, yeah. Who <laughs> was of course his, his former vice, vice president. president. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then of course in the wider party, uh, as far as I'm aware, the only the only high-profile Republican who is very outspoken against Trump is, is former presidential candidate Mitt Romney. Yeah, who of course is is definitely not not running again. So, mm. yeah, that I mean that that's not surprising in some ways, given how popular Trump appears to be, or at least the assumption of you know how popular he is with with voters. Standing up against him has not proved to be politically very successful for a lot of of people. So you can see why people might be wary of of doing that. It's a bold. Yeah decision to do that but the other the difficulty of the other way is how do you differentiate yourself from trump without alienating his voters and that seems to be sort of what 
DeSantis and some of the others are, are trying to do at the moment. But that's, you know, so I think some of the culture wars issues, he, he's trying to say, I'm taking a stronger stance on some of these these issues uh, um, about LGBTQ issues. I'm taking a stronger stance on abortion. I'm taking a stronger stance on the, the death penalty or on guns yeah. than, than Trump did without trying to directly criticize him. But that's a that's a surprisingly nuanced argument to make in the nature of American politics, which often requires a sledgehammer um, to, to get messages across. And at the moment, at least, the polls suggest that DeSantis, that message from DeSantis is not really getting through with voters. But again, we are a long way out from the election and those things yeah. can can change. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder, because it seems like he's he's gearing up for uh, a sort of two-pronged approach the first to win the nomination being you know targeting republican voters with his track record um which very much appeals to the the republican base and also to to trump voters but he's being very cautious about promoting that wider um because obviously when it comes to if he wins the nomination and goes to a, a full national election he doesn't really want left-leaning voters or anyone on the fence to know that he's really been that um far right and so he's playing this kind of i'm younger um i'm for the people you know i'm i'm a, a better vote than sort of biden basically that's a very difficult sort of approach to sort of keep up because people are becoming more aware of DeSantis, and that's reflecting in the polls like he is slipping and i think people are just starting maybe to see through the the cracks of this sort of very suave political face yeah very possibly i mean you know it's always going to happen right you you can't go if you want to win the presidency you can't go under the radar right you're not going to win it that way so at a certain point you're going to have to you know appeal beyond your base and and raise your profile and um there's some interesting things if you look on um his the desantis for president website uh which i think we're going to put a link up for uh, for people to, to have a, a look at. If you look at the language of the things, like the, the way he describes what his background is and his, his policies, um, you know, these are sort of coded in a way and written in such a way that in the current the nature of the current debate, it's quite clear where he stands on, on these. So to, to just to give you a, a few examples, um, holding woke corporations and school unions accountable so we've got the woke in in there, right? So that's linking into those issues that we were, were talking about earlier. Um, he refers to saving livelihoods from job killing lockdowns and vaccine mandates, which is obviously a, a dig at, at Biden and the what was going on during the pandemic. Um, he talks about Biden's border crisis, which of course there is a crisis at the the, the America's southern border, but it's a crisis of decades in the, the making yeah. um the biden white house may not be dealing with it very well but they didn't necessarily create it um and here we go this is is one i particularly like um during the darkest days of 2020 when the corrupt establishment bureaucracy and corporate media united to force lockdowns and mandates on americans desantis stood up for freedom even when it wasn't popular well wasn't wasn't it a republican government in 2020 though uh, yes, initially yes, under <laughs> Trump. <laughs> so, um, so there you, you there you go. But you've got 
you know, you've got those things in there. And this is on his website, right? To to disseminate information about his campaign. There's a rolling thing which shows who's donated how much and, you know, how quickly yeah. it gives the impression of lots of people donating money. And there's a, a sort of summary of his biography and all kinds of other, other things on the, the website. Um, but this is the bit where he's presenting himself and his policies and his stance and that's available to to anybody so yeah exactly you know you can he can present himself as the 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 young mainstream more energetic more in touch with people republican candidate but people can go look at at that and they're going to to see in the way these issues are worded not necessarily just the stances mm. but the way that they are worded where he he falls into the current political spectrum and there's you can't cover those things up because you either stand for them or you don't yeah and so then looking at you know how the electability of politicians to the presidency Obviously, we're, we're looking specifically at Ron DeSantis in in this episode. So, how would DeSantis get himself elected? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to at the moment. We've, we've touched on this. It's really hard to see who manages to defeat Trump with it from within the Republican Party. In the first instance, now we all know, um, you know, it's it's been in the headlines. You know that that Trump's got his own legal problems right and any any one of those could potentially take him out of the the race in some form or at least restrict his his ability to do that we we can't predict the future we don't know what's going to to happen with those but DeSantis is going to have to find a better way to deal with Trump than he is at the moment I think that's probably the the key thing if he wants to get elected he's got to win the Republican primary first and at the moment as we speak at least he has not yet found a way to address the Trump problem. And if he can't do that, he's not going to get to the, the general election stage. If he can, and the general election stage, then it's a question of, is it Biden or is it somebody else running for the Democratic presidency? Then you do have, it's not, exact a, not exactly a complete replay of the 1960 election, but what, you've, what you would then have is a, you know, a younger candidate pointing at an older one, Richard Nixon in 1960 wasn't as old as Biden, obviously. But you've got that idea of somebody from outside of politics dealing with an establishment figure, a younger candidate versus an older one. You would expect that to be part of the, the debate as well as the, the politics of it. But at the, that, all of that is such a long way off at the, the moment. And the, uh, the DeSantis camp don't yet seem to have found a way to break those Trump supporters away i think at the moment that that's got to be the biggest question for them this episode of america a history podcast was produced edited and hosted by me liam heffernan a special thanks to our guest this week dr emma long and if you want to know more, just check out the resources that we've put in the show notes. And we put a lot of work into this show. So if you can leave us a nice rating or review, wherever you're listening to the podcast, that would be great.
Next time, I'm joined by Professor Tom Smith and Jonathan Hamilt from Drag Story Hour as we take a look at why children's literature is so divisive. But I still don't feel like a lot of people really know who this guy is. Um, So that's what we're going to pick apart. And also within the context of how someone... Do you know what? I'm going to start that again because I don't know if you heard my dog just snore really, really loudly there. But <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. No, I didn't. But <laughs> I just, I can imagine that getting picked up on the mic. But yeah, right. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs>